Uh, well, in the 80s, uh, Peter Allen sang these now famous words. I've been to cities that never closed down, from New York to Rio to old London town. But no matter how far or how wide I roam, I still call Australia home. Uh, you can be very glad that I didn't sing that for you, uh, but uh, you all know the words. And it's true, isn't it? Uh, there's a place that you belong to. There is a city that you call home. And uh, you might visit other cities in this world, but it's different there, isn't it? Uh, perhaps the people speak a different language that you don't understand. Perhaps the people drive on the other side of the road. Perhaps the culture is so different that you feel like an alien. And so you long for home. Uh, well, friends, I, I want to suggest that today's passage from God's Word uh, in the book of Revelation really asks the question, which city do you belong to? Which city do you belong to? Uh, you might remember from last week that we saw the seven plagues that represent God's judgment uh, of this world, both now and at the end of human history when Jesus comes back in judgment. But in today's passage, the Apostle John is given another series of visions, and you might have noticed that uh, what, John, uh, what these visions are doing is it, it's sort of zooming in at what will happen at the very end as God destroys all those who oppose him. And uh, you may have noticed there that the passage begins and ends with the mention of two women who really represent two cities. You have the great prostitute at the beginning who represents the city of Babylon, and you have the beautiful bride at the end who represents the city of God. And the question is, which city do you belong to? Which city do I belong to? Uh, well, if you turn with me to the beginning of our passage today, in chapter 17, uh, you can see there that John is given a vision of the first woman by one of the angels who had the seven bowls of judgment, which we saw last week, didn't we? Uh, now, we can figure out that this woman represents the city of Babylon because uh, if you have a look down at verse 5, uh, chapter 17, verse 5, she has written across her forehead the words, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And further, you may have noticed that she is seated on many waters, which we find out later in verse 15, represents people and multitudes and nations and languages. In other words, this is describing a huge and and great and, and vast cosmopolitan city. That is what's being represented by this great prostitute. However, you may have noticed that uh, she is not alone, for in verse 3, she is sitting on a hideous-looking beast, full of blasphemous names and having seven heads and ten horns. Uh, I know that some of you tried to draw this image uh, during the week in your growth groups, and uh, came up with different levels of hideousness. But uh, the beast, as we've already seen in Revelation, is, a, is symbolic of human rulers who, under the influence of Satan, demand worship for themselves. 
uh, later in verse 8, uh, the beast is described as something that was and is not, and is about to rise and go to destruction. In other words, uh, the beast is a bit of a parody of God himself. Do you remember God was described as the one who is and was and is to come? He is eternal. Well, this is sort of a parody of that, isn't it? Uh, the beast pretends to be God, but he has already been defeated and is doomed to destruction. But what is the sin of the city of Babylon? What is the thing that God finds fault with her? Well, it seems there that it has something to do with her trading activities with uh, the other cities and rulers. For in verse 2, you can see that she has committed sexual immorality with the kings of the earth. However, it's not simply that trading with other cities is an evil thing in and of itself. Rather, it seems that the sin here is that the city of Babylon is driven by this insatiable thirst to glorify itself as she trades and grows in wealth and luxurious living at the expense of others. It's a bit like uh, the, the, um, the, the city of Babel that we read about in, in Genesis, which was all about the glory of the self. Uh, you can see evidence of this over in chapter 18, uh, which is the big judgment chapter. For God says in chapter 18, verse 7, uh, just turn with me to chapter 18, verse 7. God says, As she, that is Babylon, glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. In other words, the sin of Babylon is that she lives to glorify herself above God, even as she piles on the wealth and luxury around her, thinking that she will live forever. But the thing is, friends, that living for self-glory will always result in the harm of others. So you can see, uh, in chapter 17, verse 6, that the woman is drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now you see a similar thing in chapter 18, verse 24, chapter 18, verse 24, where in the city of Babylon there is found the blood of the prophets and the saints. However, it's not just Christians who suffer in this city through persecution. But a city that lives for self-glory will result in trade that harms and exploits others as well. And so, uh, if you turn to chapter 18, verse 12, have a look at chapter 18, verse 12. Uh, you read there of all the luxury goods that have flowed into the city of Babylon, you know, gold and silver and costly jewels and all manner of luxury goods. And at the end of verse 13, you see that one of those things that have come into Babylon is that of slaves or human souls that are dehumanized and just traded just like any other object. Uh, this week I read something by a, a Christian apologist named Vince Vitale who uh, imagines this uh, horrendous scenario. Uh, it's completely fiction, but I think it shows just how true it is that our world treats human life 
no different to simply objects. He paints an imaginary scene where he says this. Uh, there's a guy walking along the train tracks and he realises he's dropped his iPhone a few steps back. He looks forward and sees that a train is coming. And at the same time, he also sees a young child tied to the tracks, screaming for help. He can easily untie the child in time, but he realises he only has time either to untie the child or to go back and pick up his iPhone. He also hears noise to his right, and so he looks and he sees the child's family is trying to get to him, but they are stuck behind the barbed wire fence, helpless to rescue him. The family sees the man and screams desperately to him to save the child. The man looks at the child, the man looks at the family, and then casually walks back and picks up his iPhone. The child and his family weep and wail until the train comes. That when interviewed about the situation, the man said, I know I could have easily saved that child, but I really like my iPhone. And if I had let the train crush it, I'd have to buy another one. And that would mean I wouldn't have the extra cash to buy the new TV that I really want. It just wasn't worth saving the child. It's not my problem. Now, friends, you and I might think that this scenario is a bit far-fetched. And uh, it is true, isn't it, that we're not faced with these kind of immediate choices all the time. But I want to suggest that it's not so far-fetched when we see just how this world is in the grip of self-glory, such that it views human life as objects that are worthless and there to be traded and discarded. Uh, we see it in the rampant consumption of pornography, as women are objectified and then discarded. Uh, we see it in the abortion industry, where the large majority of women who get abortions simply do it for lifestyle reasons and are willing to treat human life as worthless. We see it in the unequal trade that nations engage in with one another so that Wealthy nations just become more wealthy at the expense of poorer nations who become poorer and poorer. It's not so far-fetched, is it, friends? But who is Babylon? What is this city that the Apostle John sees? Well, uh, loads of ink has been spilled in answering this question, and many commentators say that in Revelation, uh, Babylon is the city of Rome, the ancient city of Rome, uh, or the Roman Empire. And they come to this conclusion because they try to fit what they know of Roman history to the description of the beast in this vision. And so, for example, in uh, chapter 17, verse 9, uh, we're told that the beast has seven heads, uh, and that, that those heads represent seven mountains and seven kings. And so many people think that this is speaking of the Roman Empire because, uh, I don't know whether you know this, but uh, the Roman, uh, the city of Rome itself was uh, purportedly built on seven hills. And by doing some historical gymnastics, you can come up with seven emperors uh, who had uh, uh, ruled the Roman Empire around this time. Now, uh, 
friends, I have no doubt that the original hearers of Revelation would have identified the prostitute riding the beast to be the city of Rome, for that was the great empire of the time. That was the great city that lived for self-glory to the expense of others. However, if you remember, Revelation is written in symbolic language. And so numbers like 7 and 10 are numbers that represent completeness. And so I think that the seven kings are not you know, seven individual rulers of the Roman Empire, but it's talking about all the rulers across human history who, under the influence of Satan, try to bring glory to themselves to the destruction of others. And the ten horns uh, represent all those kings who have been delegated power by these uh, great kings so that they might also rule with them in their empires. And so the fact that uh, in chapter 17, verse 10, uh, five out of the seven kings have fallen is not meant to suggest that you know, by this time five specific emperors had fallen and that the six was now ruling, but it's simply saying that we live in the sixth period, uh, which suggests that whether we live under the Roman Empire back then or whether we live now in more modern times, uh, we are near the end of human history where God will bring all things to a close. And so Babylon is any city that is all about self-glory rather than the glory of God. It is Rome. It is New York. It is Rio. It's old London town. Indeed, it is our very own city of Sydney, which is a godless city that is driven by an insatiable need to glorify itself through its wealth and luxury and ignorance of human suffering. Is that true? Can you see it? Now, friends, I want to suggest that if I'm right, then this is actually good news. For it means that you don't have to be a professor of ancient Roman history in order to understand the Bible. You know, many people think that Revelation is, an, is a book that we just can't understand unless we have all the historical background in place. But like every other book of the Bible, you and I as ordinary Christians, with the help of God's Spirit, can read this book and understand something of God's truth and what he's telling us about the present and about the future. Uh, now, friends, I wonder what your reaction is to Babylon. Uh, well, one of the striking things in our passage, which has already been alluded to in our kids' talk, is that when the Apostle John is shown this vision of the great prostitute that is Babylon, well, he is somewhat impressed by what he sees, isn't he? Uh, you can see it there in the second half of chapter 17, verse 6. Chapter 17, verse 6, he says, When I saw her, I marveled greatly. I marveled greatly. It's a surprising response in some ways because the vision that he has just been shown of Babylon and the beast is such a grotesque picture. And yet it is a realistic window into the human soul, isn't it? For isn't it true that when we look at the world that lives to glorify itself, well, you and I can also find ourselves impressed by its power 
and its wealth and its luxury. Isn't it true that we also can uh, forget about the glory of God as John does at the end of our passage when he starts to worship an angel and we marvel at the things of this world, wanting it for ourselves. But here's the thing. What God says in this part of his word is that Babylon and the beast that it rides on has no future. It has no future. They will both come to an end. In chapter 17, verse 8, the beast will go to destruction. In chapter 17, verse 14, even though Babylon and the beast make war on the lamb, well, there is no question that the lamb will conquer them both. In fact, he has already conquered them at the cross, as we've been seeing again and again. And it's only a matter of time before they come to an end. Uh, it's summarized in chapter 18, uh, if you have a look at verse 2, by the prophetic words that announce this fall in advance. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. And when that happens, it will be a swift fall. For in verse 10 of chapter 18, you can see that it will come in a single hour. And in verse 17, it is in a single hour that the entire wealth of Babylon will end. And so uh, chapter 18 is largely devoted to showing us the certain end for Babylon as she is judged by God. You know, our passage this morning began with the prostitute reveling in an orgy with the kings of the earth. Here in chapter 18, what we see is a funeral where Babylon has come to its grisly end. Notice the people who are mourning and wailing at this funeral. Um, have a look with me at chapter 18, verse 9. Chapter 18, verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. In verse 11 it says, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. In verse 17 it says, And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried as they saw the smoke of her burning. In other words, all these people who had traded with Babylon and took part in her immorality will weep and wail at Babylon's funeral, not only because Babylon has met her end and is going up in smoke, but because they also do not have a future because of Babylon's demise. Now, what is the reason behind the fall of Babylon? Well, in chapter 17, verse 7, it seems to suggest that the rulers of Babylon themselves will turn on the city. They do not love her. In fact, they hate her. And how many cities and empires and civilizations have fallen because of political intrigue among the rulers? You know, things can happen very quickly when rulers are assassinated or when there is a military coup or when there is instability in government in the nations of the world. But the thing I want you to see here is that the ultimate reason for Babylon's fall are not human factors. Rather, it is God's judgment for her self-glory expressed in her wealth and luxury 
at the expense of human lives. All cities and empires and civilizations will be brought to an end. Sometimes in human history, have you met anyone from Babylon recently? Have you met anyone from the city of Tyre, which was a similar city in the Old Testament? But not only in human history, but at the end of human history as well. And so, because God will bring Babylon to an end, God calls his people to come out of the city. I mean, it doesn't make sense, does it, to remain in a city that you know will burn and come to an end. You can see it there in chapter 18, verse 4. This is the call of God. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Uh, I remember uh, someone, I, I can't remember who it was, telling me once that they lived near a park. And uh, at this park, there were these uh, huge trees that had been there for hundreds of years. And uh, the thing was that uh, these trees had developed uh, a disease, and uh, the council uh, had to put up a notice saying that the trees had to be cut down because uh, all these heavy branches were falling down and endangering people's lives. But the sadder thing, however, is that uh, this friend watched day by day from his window at home as he saw the birds that had built their nests in these trees. And uh, he saw day after day these birds keep pouring their energy into making their nests bigger and bigger, more comfortable day by day, until eventually the heavy machinery moved in and uprooted the whole thing. Now, friends, I wonder whether sometimes we can marvel so much at the power and the wealth and the luxury of this world that lives for self-glory, that we are tempted to live no differently to the rest of this world in its desire for wealth and comfort and luxury and self-glory rather than the glory of God. If someone you knew, someone you knew well could watch you and your life from Monday to Saturday, would they conclude that you belong to Babylon or would they conclude that you belong to the city of God. If you showed your credit card statement to a good friend, would they conclude that you belong to Babylon or would they conclude that you belong to the city of God? What God says here to you and me this morning is that we must come out of Babylon. It doesn't make sense to stay and pour myself into something that will soon be destroyed. Of course, this doesn't mean physically removing ourselves from the city. It's not telling us to be Amish. For then, how could we reach the world with the gospel, which is consistent with the rest of Scripture? But it does mean that we live differently in this world and against the grain of this world, because we live not for the temporal things that will soon pass away,
but for the eternal things that will last forever. How do we do this? Well, I'm sure it will look very different for each one of us. Uh, the book of Revelation, you will have noticed, does not give us a list of do's and don'ts about how to live like this. But the key to living appropriately in light of what we have heard this morning is rather than marvelling at the things that will one day pass away, it is to marvel instead at God and the Lamb who has saved us by his blood and has conquered all things that stand opposed to him and his people. It is to see something of the glory of God in the book of Revelation and the rest of Scripture, such that it takes our breath away, so that we might marvel in him, rather than the things that are here one moment, but will be gone the next. Uh, one of my favourite songs that we sing at church at nine is Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Do you remember that one? Now, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full on his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. That's what it looks like to come out of Babylon, isn't it? What do you marvel at? Do you marvel at the power and wealth and luxury of godless Babylon? Or do you marvel at the Lord Jesus Christ? For if we marvel in Jesus, it will affect every area of our life, including our time and energy and money and where we live and how we use our homes and our possessions, what we watch, what we spend our time in, Indeed, every area of life, for Jesus is the only one worthy of our marvelling. Well, finally, uh, in order to help us marvel rightly, John is given another vision at the end, and this time it is a glorious vision of heaven itself in chapter 19. Uh, now, you'll notice that there is a lot of praising going on in heaven as great multitudes sing their praise to God. Uh, that's what the word hallelujah means, which you see repeated again and again there. Uh, it's a call to praise God, not only for his glorious salvation, but also for his glorious judgment of Babylon, who has shed the blood of his people. But friends, uh, did you notice that heaven here is described as a marriage? You can see it there in chapter 19, verse 7 where it is described as a marriage between the Lamb, who is Jesus, and his bride, who is the other woman in our passage this morning. We began today with the great prostitute, symbolising the city of Babylon. We end with the bride, symbolising the church, or the city of God himself. We began with the prostitute, who, uh, living for self-glory, comes to a swift end, uh, we end with the bride who lives for the glory of God and who comes to live for all eternity in joyful praise and worship of him. We began with the prostitute who invited the kings of the world to uh, commit sexual immorality with her. We end with a better invitation 
which is an invitation to come to the wedding of the Lamb. But it's also a strange invitation, isn't it? For it is not simply an invitation to come as a guest. It's an invitation to come as the bride and to be part of the city of God itself. And those who have accepted this invitation are those who are getting ready for that great wedding day. And how do you get ready? Well, it's, it's the same message that we've been hearing again and again in the book of Revelation. It's by continuing to trust in the Lamb and his blood shed on the cross for us and for our sins. It is to persevere in our loyalty to Jesus even through the adversities of the Christian life. For by trusting in the Lamb and his blood shed on the cross, what he does is he removes our filthy clothing, which is stained with our sin and deserving of judgment, and he clothes us with the pure dress of his righteousness so that we can be accepted by God into his great city as the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see that this is how you get ready in chapter 19, verse 6. Chapter 19, verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Uh, I got married in this church building uh, 16 years ago, and uh, the picture that is burned into my memory is uh, when I saw my bride uh, coming through those back doors, clothed in her dazzling white dress. It almost made me cry. But it wouldn't have been the same if she turned up in her tracksuit. It wouldn't have been the same if she just came in her ripped jeans and her shirt, wearing her slides, as she does now. <laughs> but you see, she was ready because she was dressed in her dress. Similarly, the way we get ready for the wedding day of the Lamb is by trusting in Jesus and being clothed in his righteousness. Are you ready? Have you put your trust in Jesus? Are you persevering in your loyalty to him? Brothers and sisters, let's be people who marvel at the Lord Jesus Christ because we do not belong to the city of Babylon, but rather we belong to the city of God. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. Uh, we thank you that you reveal to us so clearly the things that must soon take place. And Father, we confess that like the Apostle John, uh, we so often marvel at those who live for self-glory and the wealth and the luxury that come in this way. And Father, we confess that we have so often desired these things 
that we will come to a certain end rather than the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood for us that we might belong to his eternal city which is full of joy and the right worship of you. Father, help us by your spirit to marvel instead at the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to desire him and give us the wisdom to know what it looks like for us to come out of Babylon. And please give us the courage to repent and to make changes in our lives so that we might not live for our own glory, but the glory of him who loves us and who died for us. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.